I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. All right. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. 
How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm excited because today we are going to look at our first topic as we dive into Twelfth Night. And this one is a little bit, I don't, I don't think I've, yeah, different. That's a great word for it. I don't really hear people talking about it. And to be honest, it was a little challenging finding sources. So this is a note to all you scholars out there. Please do more work on this so it's easier for us to make our podcast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know it's not interesting to you, maybe, but But it is to us. It is to us. And And maybe other people. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So um, the topic is plays for the court. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? As we mentioned in Stuff to Chew On, we know, and we being not just you and I, but like Shakespeare scholars, Shakespeare actors know that Twelfth Night was performed at court and that plays were performed at court. But we wanted to dive into what did that mean? Yes. What is the difference between a play performed at court and a play performed in a theater? Yeah, the public theater. And like every single source that we could find is like, we know that plays were performed at court. Mm -hmm. That's it. The end. Goodbye. Can you expand a little? Yeah, everyone universally knows this. It's just programmed into our brains when we are born. Uh, (laughs) But court was wherever the queen happened to be, and it was made up of all of those people who surrounded the queen, from servants to the courtiers themselves. So that's what Mm -hmm. court was during um, the monarchy. Uh, Lise, you found quite a bit of stuff about the structure of place for the court. So what, what was that like? So court performances were actually very regimented and controlled there is a position within the royal household known as the master of revels Mm -hmm. and this individual's job was to make sure that the entertainments would suit the tastes of the queen or later the king and this job may have had influence over what was the way music was used in plays what was performed the genres that were allowed at court so they basically Um, were like curating entertainment for the queen yes exactly so plays weren't the only things that happened at court first of all so when we're talking about elizabeth we're talking about hampton court and uh i'll also get into james who uh preferred to stay at whitehall castle Mm. so again like you said it was just wherever they wanted to hang out (laughs) Um, and monarchs all have their favorite castles yeah they do because that's a thing you get to have when when you are uh the king or queen of an entire country i (laughs) Uh, think i read somewhere that like there were many many places half of them were dilapidated and like only half of them were kept up so the ones that we're talking about are going to be like the faves that are just absolutely gorgeous these are these are the nice places to stay possibly just the ones that have been most recently renovated too right right so speaking specifically about elizabeth to start off with she maintained a firm control over who got to perform at hampton court for musicians there would also be masks which are somewhere in between music and a play there are actors there's music there's dance maybe it's a musical Um, some early form before the american musical got a hold of yes yeah members of the court would be participating they wouldn't necessarily Mm. be outside actors the way (laughs) that i am delineating the difference is because specifically Women could perform in masks because masks were not professional theater. Okay. They're like amateur productions. Right. Community theater productions nowadays. And the like tool of expression would be dance Mm -hmm. more than 
speech. So they were characters who spoke, and those would still likely be played by male actors. Okay. So masks were usually allegorical in theme, filled with mythological and symbolic worlds, while plays were more based in reality and realism. So masks might have gods or concept just characters. They're a little bit more like Greek theater. Yeah, I was saying I was getting images of Greek theater going on. Whereas plays are like people being people dealing with human issues. Right. Back to our friend, the Master of Rebels. That individual got to choose what happened, even though Elizabeth would kind of indicate what ensembles and musicians she wanted to hear and when. And then the Lord Chamberlain and the Master of Rebels and performers were able to determine exactly what that would be. Almost like getting to say like, oh, I want to book this band, but then the band gets to choose their set list. Gotcha. So for example, this is a quote from uh, The Royal Household and Its Rebels, Music in Elizabethan Court Politics by Catherine Butler. The Lord Chamberlain's memorandum for Twelfth Night 1601 notes Elizabeth's request for a carol to be sung at dinner by the children of the Chapel Royal and for music to be appointed for the Queen and the play in the hall, which would include great variety and change of music and dances and a place for Robert Hales to sing. Ah. So that's kind of like the level of control that Elizabeth had over what was happening. She also tolerated performances that expressed ideas and themes that were contrary to her own personal beliefs and desires. Oh. So plays and masks and music could and did comment on the court and London at the time and the relationship between the two. I'll get back to that, though, in a minute. Okay. Uh, so the Elizabethan theatrical event was also a flexible vehicle that could probably accommodate full performances of Shakespeare's plays. Court festivities at Christmas, New Year's, and Shrovetide often included these plays. I found it interesting, too, that if you are looking at what theater looks like, the public theater, in Shakespeare's time, by King Charles I's reign. So what we are... This is after James, talking. right? This is after James. Yeah. So like going way far out to just kind of look back. Mm -hmm. There are only three indoor theaters in London during the Carolinian era. Ah. So it's really hard to uh, perform outdoors. Yes, it is. In the London winter. So I also imagine, especially with the timing of these, yes, like a lot of these performances are happening over the winter holidays, but also it's a good time to like stay employed as an actor and get to do your art indoors. And it was also a great and convenient way for patrons of the arts to be able to see what they were paying for. Mm. They brought it to them. We also have documentary evidence that shows how plays were produced at a level appropriate to a court venue. Philip Henslow, who was a member of the Admiral's Company, he was a shareholder in a few theaters around London at the time including the Lord Chamberlain's men during Shakespeare's tenure with the company. Mm -hmm. He kept very detailed accounting of not only like money that he was lending, but like how he, as a theater producer at this time, paid and created plays. Oh, thank the theater um, gods for him. Right. And we have it. Yeah. We read it. It's fascinating. It is dry because it's just oh. an accounting book. <laughs> but, um, so there is a 
inventory from March 10th, 1598 that inventories the Admiral Company's stuff. Oh, and a fun fact, the Admiral Company is the company that was the house company of the Rose Theater. For R&J fans, a lot of people are very convinced that a rose by any other word would smell as sweet is a is joke about the Rose, the rose Theater smell. because it was famously by a sewage ditch. Mm-hmm. So it, it didn't smell so hot over at the Rose. Nope. nope. Um, so this is that theater company. That's a little okay. bit of a sidebar. Sorry about that. Okay. A fun one. Anyway, Henslow built the Rose and was a shareholder in many theater companies at the time. He had the most shares in the Admiral's company, but also had investments in the Lord Chamberlain's men, which was Shakespeare's company during Shakespeare's tenure. At that time. Right. Yeah. And he kept these very detailed accounting books that we are able to find and read. And in an inventory on March 10th, 1598, he inventories the Admiral Company's stuff, which is what it's called. (laughs) So like theater companies today, the companies of Shakespeare's time had storage that they kept props, set pieces, and costumes um, costumes on hand that once they were made they could be reused or when they put that production up again they already have it so uh in his inventory there's a one is a huge amount of stuff Uh the technical term stuff stuff yes and some are identified by the play they were used in so not only were plays that were publicly performed using this but They were able to use this when they performed at court. And some of the plays that are mentioned in that list were ones that we know were performed at court because they were masks or plays that we know were performed at court. So there was a very high production value, actually, at court court. and um, in public. This is the Admiral's, right? Yes, this is is the Admiral's company. But we can use it as an example of what went into producing these. Like, they're not just getting up and performing like a stripped down version of the play that they perform elsewhere. It's a full-blown theatrical production that they're just bringing to court. They're just Um, packing up wagons and taking them wherever, yeah. Another fun fact that we can learn from his diary is that the Master of Revels, so the curator of the Royal Household Entertainment, collected fees for the licensure of plays. So... Um, in order to produce plays, you had to be licensed. Yeah. And that's who you paid your fee to. Henslow uh. also routinely paid the Master of Revels a monthly 40 shillings, possibly as uh-huh. an additional fee, to make sure that plays got licensed. To... Like, here, take a little bit of extra money, make sure that mine gets yeah. licensed mm-hmm. so that I can perform this play more often. Okay. exactly. And then as we know from Macbeth... The plays that were produced were sometimes written very uh, much with the audience in mind. So we have Shakespeare's Henry VIII, for example. So Shakespeare's Henry VIII and William Rowley's When You See Me, You Know Me are two other plays that were performed at court. Rowley was associated with a company called The Prince's Men. This is during James's time, jumping forward in time a little bit. Okay. Both plays are about Henry VIII, but pay homage to Henry, Prince of Wales, who was King James's eldest son and named successor. There was also a lot of nostalgia for Henry VIII during James's reign, which is why these they were chosen as topics. Uh-huh. To perform at court, 
Companies and playwrights would have been familiar with issues concerning protocol and the image of the royal family, as well as people who were present at court. Yeah. And with the king as his theater's theatrical patron, Shakespeare, for example, would have been incredibly familiar with Whitehall Palace, where King James held Like to have, yeah. Henry VIII is also uh, Shakespeare's only play, other than Macbeth, that is specifically designed with King James and the Stuart royal family and court in mind. Really? Yep. But that's very interesting that those are the yeah. two that mm-hmm. really focus on James and James's obsession with his lineage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of knowing so much about the members of court, court life, protocols, even though you're just, you know, a lonely glove maker's son. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, how could you possibly know all this? Well, you do because it's your job to. It literally um, is. You found how how like, these court members, I found how these court members and the public opinion of these court members influenced Shakespeare as well as his contemporaries when writing plays that in some yeah. way, not directly because, again, there was, you know, censorship from the, the state, but how they permeated into, like, kind of seeped into the plays that were being written. Right, because plays could mm-hmm. and did comment on the politics of court. And in my reading, they even talked about, like, King James was shown a lot of, this is how people want you to lead mm, in, in those plays. plays. And, like, aspirational. As a member of court, you can learn a lot about, like, what's going on through plays that's interesting and like just kind of filter like obviously no one's coming out and being like you suck no and the monarchy right but instead being like you know there's this debate going on with the puritans Mm -hmm. and the theaters going on right now we're going to kind of dramatize that so you can kind of get clued into what you as the monarch should be doing well that makes sense too especially with james because james was seen as a weak ruler there was a lot of nostalgia for previous monarchs when James was ruling. And so it does make sense. And the same kind of thing is seen in Elizabethan court. And that's really what I found. During Shakespeare's time, there was this fraught figure of the old man in love that uh, may be inspired by, or probably basically was inspired by Elizabeth's court's experimentation with gendered and generational roles. I read sections from this book, Age in Love, Shakespeare and the Elizabethan Court by Jacqueline Van Hout. And what this author is arguing is that these courtier characters expect their deviance to result in social, political, or even spiritual reward that can be attributed to Elizabeth's queenship. And what that did was it unleashed these really like radical possibilities of gender and generational roles that were controversial at that time. So like we're talking characters like... Malvolio yeah. and Falstaff, if you're looking. Well, yeah. Falstaff. Yeah. yeah. Falstaff. Even like in As You Like It, you have like Corin mm-hmm. and. You can find them in a lot of places. And um, that, yeah. yeah. And that's really something that was happening at the time that was really influencing Shakespeare. And the, the idea of the old man in love is not strictly a Elizabethan concept. It's super ancient. Um, that's how historical I am. It's super ancient. Uh, but these myths <laughs> took on a, it was like part of ancient culture and these myths took on a very specific shape in late Tudor England because Elizabeth was the monarch. 
And so with her, there was like generational stuff. And then there's also gender stuff. So we'll get into both of those. But according to Keith Thomas, the median age of the Privy Councillors at the Elizabethan court was never less than 51. And this is at a time when the average life expectancy of the population was 37. So you have these older courtiers who are in Elizabeth's ear, spending a lot of time with her. And some examples of these would be Sir Christopher Hatton, who was a politician Mm -hmm. and a Lord Chancellor, one of Elizabeth's favorites. And um, I believe he left court when he was 49. Robert Dudley, the first Earl of Leicester, a statesman and another favorite, was 55. Remember Leicester? He's going to come up. Sir Francis Walsingham, a principal secretary and spymaster to Elizabeth, was 56. And William Cecil, first Baron Burghley and Elizabeth's chief advisor, who we've talked about a little bit, was 69. So a lot of the people that are in her court and have her ear are on the older side of the age spectrum. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth's favorites, specifically Hatton and Lester, were seen as violating the culture's expectations for aging men. During Shakespeare's time, men were seen to have progressed or ripened with time as you get older. An aging lover is considered an unnatural regression that would return you back to boyhood or reduce you to Mm. more of an animal, like an ass. So think uh, bottom, perhaps. Oh, okay. And this was really confirmed and like internalized by classical works like Cicero's Cato Mayer, De Senectute, and that wrote into Elizabethan society that elders are supposed to be counselors full of wisdom and authority and policy. Oh, okay. So it's also like the ages of man in in as, as you like, like it. it. Yep, exactly. Okay. And so that was super internalized during this time period. And like a lot of people responded to Elizabeth ruling these older men. And it resulted in a lot of rumors and gossip about her alleged lovers, these elder counselors. And the public showed a lot of discomfort and scrutiny of this unorthodox behavior. This can be seen in images, unpublished and published poems, treatises, plays and performances. And kind of going back to your tyranny and treason, this was also a form of political speech that was seen as dangerous, and the Elizabethan court passed laws to criminalize these forms of speech. So specifically talking about Elizabeth and scrutinizing her elder counselors and the possible alleged love affairs. One example of this old, lustful man depiction is from an anonymous pamphlet that's called Lester's Commonwealth from 1584, and it represents Lester as an oversexed old man. And like Lester had publicly courted the queen and people were Mm -hmm. shocked by this at the time. He would use like modes of aristocratic public self-display. He ordered matching portraits of himself and the queen in a way of trying to gesture towards becoming a prince consort of king. Mm. And he also took to publishers to circulate flattering images of himself, including his portrait. And Uh, This advertising had consequences with his critics who saw him as an aspiring mind, trysting after dignitaries, sway, and authority far beyond those afforded by his place. He was also seen as an aging voluptuary, lost in lawless lust and base and filthy luxury. And this is where I, Corey, sit here and put on my Carrie Bradshaw uh, hat and go, I couldn't help but wonder, is Lester Malvolio? Oh, you know, I was I was kind of thinking theater nerd version, uh-huh. okay? I was just like, how clever, though. Because in the Italian theatrical tradition of Commedia dell'arte, mm-hmm. which Shakespeare pulls from in his comedies a lot, there's this archetype of the Pantalone, mm. who is this old, 
oversexed mm-hmm. man. So, like, you can't critique or say anything about these specific individuals. So you create these characters that kind of do operate, either like Malvolio and getting, like, condemned for it, or, like, Sir Toby or Falstaff, who just are funny about it. Yeah. And you can kind of, if anyone's like, hey, is that is that Lester? You can be like, oh, no, I'm just doing Commedia dell'arte. Yeah. This public gossip and rumor and concern, really, for the older oversexed or seemingly oversexed aging courtier is something that people were talking about, similarly to going back to what you were saying about, like, people knew about stuff going on public life and public opinion being placed into the works that are put on not only at the public theater but at the court that is seen here like people who see this play know that there was lester's commonwealth and that that was representing lester as this oversexed old man who's looking for favor from elizabeth and trying to like woo her in these ways that he an older man who is under her status should not be doing you know yeah but if you can point it to something else like Commedia dell'arte, brush your hands and be like, yeah, nah, man, I'm not talking about him. But you kind of were in theatrical representations of these lecherous old courtiers was inciting audiences to laughter. Mm -hmm. In the period, it was a form of judgment from those pamphlets. And then also on stage, it was seen as ways to kind of make fun of them. In the book of Courtier, laughter performs the same work of enforcing these social norms as praising or censuring. Uh, These are social judgments about old men in love based on commonly held criteria regarding appropriate sexual and generational behavior. And they play into the emotions of shame, envy, desire, disgust, and embarrassment and resentment. So all of these commentaries on this old aging man was created to make fun of them or show disgust towards them. And it was very public. And then that leads me to another Carrie Bradshaw moment where I, I couldn't help but wonder... Are Mariah, Toby, and Festy a theatrical representation of laughing and mocking these public figures? You know, oh. You know, because mm-hmm. if Lester is Malvolio, and what happens to him is he's trying to go above his, you know, above his, his, sta- station. his station in life, and then you have uh, Mariah, Toby, and Festy who put this big prank on him to humili- humiliate him, mm-hmm. could it be kind of meta in some ways? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, especially because they're, like, they're lower even than he is. They're your Londoners. Yeah. You could definitely see it as a way of saying, Lester, people outside of this court think you are a joke. Yes. Because of the way you're acting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, outside of this bubble, this is, like, the what I was talking bubble. about, like, plays could kind of comment on stuff that was going on in the court and what was going on in London and how the two interplayed with each other because it is, like, Court was like this bubble inside of London. Yeah, I think that you could totally read into that. Mm-hmm. London is, you know, your fools, your drunkards at a tavern, your, your soldiers. Sir, yeah, your, your um, house. Bar wenches. Yeah, housekeepers. Or, um, housekeepers. And so all the while there are these perceptions of Elizabeth's favorites publicly. And the political thought of the time, it held that subjects could judge monarchs by the company they kept. A female ruler whose promotions reflected private affection and respect or partiality rather than impartiality had this risk of confirming that women are natural tyrants because they are only hiring, hiring people, people that, that you, you like rather than thinking it through and making the best decision. It's, it's you know. Rather than being what's best for the country, it's what's best for your boyfriend. Exactly. Yeah. 
that's one of the gender norms that was thought of at the time that oh i mean at the time we still have yeah she's gonna lead with her emotions or she's too emotional for this she's not gonna be able to think clearly that's true she menstruates therefore therefore she's gonna push that like and the world person is gonna have pms and cause doomsday even when that person is postmenopausal. yep so clearly some things haven't changed unfortunately unfortunately this is all great i'm also thinking about when we're talking about aging courtiers in shakespeare there's an old man in many a shakespeare play somehow which i always was like there must have been somebody in the lord chamberlain's men the king's men who was older or just really good at playing these parts because this trope comes back a lot and to think of it instead of purely practical we have an older actor yeah we have an older actor i'm going to write a role for him instead of it being used to comment on this social political trend in elizabeth's court it's kind of like when you see plays that are put into like modern contexts when they're doing shakespeare in a modern setting and they use news anchors as a character to deliver the prologue thinking about like Romeo and Juliet or yeah 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 Boslerman's Romeo and Juliet those are the connections that I'm I'm currently making making. this idea yeah and like Lester and Hatton they did those things they delayed their marriage or remarriage they failed to produce legitimate heirs and they played this role of a lover for Elizabeth again Carrie Bradshaw I couldn't help but wonder is Malvolio (laughs) Uh, facing this humiliation in the darkroom scene similar to like a large consequence that Lester would have or um, a consequence that other courtiers would face because while modern audiences like we don't catch the timeliness of Shakespeare's work that much the early modern playgoers had the benefit of all of these resources other plays pamphlets poems to understand these very timely references and Lester and Hatton, the two favorites, actually had died before Shakespeare joined in this kind of theatrical debate of royal favoritism. Mm-hmm. But Lester, there was this collective memory of Lester that made a huge impact. Lester was a premier theatrical patron in England when Shakespeare was coming of age. The founder of the theater where Shakespeare's plays were first staged, James Burbage, and the clown Will Kemp were both members of the Earl's famous traveling troupe. Lester was instrumental in putting together the Queen's Men, and many of Shakespeare's future colleagues worked under the Earl. Some biographers also believe that Shakespeare attended the 1575 entertainments at Kenilworth, which was near Stratford, and that was where Lester planned. Remember those portraits I talked about earlier? Mm-hmm. That yeah. was where Lester planned to present those matching portraits. In the end, he didn't, and this was because he planned to only show them if he won the courtship of Elizabeth. And he did not win her hand in marriage, so he decided to not Oof. share those those portraits. But some people believe that if Shakespeare's missing years were in the Queen's men's acting troupe at one point, Shakespeare might have written work that would have been to like please the Earl. Um, so we don't know that mm-hmm. we don't know this for sure, but this is something that has come out as a possibility for him. And it would also kind of explain why there's this fascination with Lester. One way that we see this in Twelfth Night is bear baiting references. So bear baiting is a huge part of Twelfth Night. And while recent critics like us view the bear baiting metaphors from the perspective of the comparisons between Bloodsport and the theater, Van Hout argues that the bear baiting references reflect a concern with the effect of ad hominem attacks or attacks on the person, not the position that they take, that satirists, aka theater makers, 
have on public life and collective memory. Mm. And this is super strong with Lester because Lester's insignia is the Dudley Bear and critics began to identify him with bear baiting. Oh, oh, wow. So like Olivia's whole speech about how she's feeling like she's the bear getting baited, that could be all like satirizing Lester. Yeah, completely. And like Lester died in 1588, but he was still connected to bear baiting well into the 1590s. And another way that we see Lester, a possible reference to Lester, is Sir John Harrington's 1596 pamphlet called A New Discourse of a Stale Subject called The Metamorphosis of Ajax. This pamphlet was controversial. Hold on. I just really appreciate A New Discourse on a Stale Subject. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Isn't that I great? know we've been over this. I'm going over I'm gonna- it again. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to revisit this. Yeah. Um, I've got new goss. You're Ross with the hot goss. And <laughs> and this this pamphlet, it was controversial because it repeated court gossip while also detailing methods for the disposal of human waste. Harrington was in a, like the inventor or something of like the modern or like a more modern plumbing system. He was really into um into waste. But um in an offending passage, the narrator tries to sell his invention of the flush toilet, opining that he, quote, may one day be put into the chronicles as good members of our country more worthily than the great bear that carried eight dogs on him when Monsieur was here, unquote. And this is a reference to Lester's opposition to the French match Anjou, a suitor to Elizabeth, that inspired the pamphlet Lester's Commonwealth, which was that attack on Elizabeth's favorite, uh-huh. Lester. So Harrington's jab at Lester shows that he did not view Lester's contributions to England in high regards, but he's like using his love and fascination for the flush toilet and also talking about the Chronicles in there and like insulting Lester, the big bear or the great bear all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And Peter Smith argues that the M-O-A-I in Mariah's letter is an abbreviated Mm -hmm. title for the metamorphosis of Ajax. Because the, <gasps> the early modern English has that J looking like an I. So, uh-huh. so it'd be M-O-A-I. In Ajax, like I said, Harrington discusses the bathroom waste of the court, intimating that Elizabeth Stewart was well informed on his lady's great peas because of the toilet oh, stuff. My, yes. Yep. M-O-A-I doth sway my life. Uh-huh. Right? Like that's the... Yeah. So it's not a misspell, like, it could be a direct reference to this pamphlet, or, like, yeah. a sly reference a sly. to this pamphlet, an in-joke that we no longer get, instead of a, like, weird misspelling of Malvolio. Yep, this pamphlet that was specifically insulting Lester and his contribution to England with all that, you know, toilet stuff, too. Yeah, and, like, uh, Malvolio talking about Olivia's peas. Yes, which I read that and I was like, no way, no way. Yeah, his tongue-in-cheek public discussion of the Queen's great peas meant to appeal to men of judgment, which is a precedent for the Malvolio plot. And Twelfth Night is filled with aging men who pine over a fair princess at the center of a sexualized meritocracy. So Olivia Mm -hmm. is the center for these men to orbit around. So you've got Orsino, Malvolio, and Sir Andrew. They all pursue this cruelest she alive, who seems determined to lead her graces to the grave and leave the world no copy. I couldn't help but wonder, is Olivia Elizabeth I? Is she an Elizabeth figure? Elizabeth was the virgin queen. She left no copies. Cesario and Sebastian are pulled into this orbit, but they are 
uh, young and worthy of Olivia, unlike the older age and love courtiers. And this world of Illyria leads the collective memory back to a political era when the queen's marriage was the most pressing issue for the English nation. And like Olivia has like another parallel is like she's she is an effective leader of her household. Mm -hmm. Yes. Just like Elizabeth is an effective leader of England. Yeah. But how how does Shakespeare allude to Malvolio's older age? One that I thought was very funny was when Malvolio fusses that quote, this does make some obstruction in the blood, this cross-gartering. It's often read as a bad fit between costume and class, like the costume doesn't fit his social status. But really, it is a bad fit between costume and bodily composition. Doctors of the time believed that obstruction resulted from the cooling effects of aging and advised old men to beware of making obstructions which, quote, with clammy matter stop the places where the natural humors are wrought and digested. So the clothing of Malvolio's youth, the cross-gartering, are old-fashioned, and they don't fit him anymore because he's older, and they don't fit his body. Right. And like the public ridicule of aging courtiers disobeying generational decorum, uh, Mariah, Sir Toby, and Fabian subject Malvolio to what amounts to a type of bear-baiting and fool him black and blue. I just wanted to say, when I was doing my reading and I just read that okay there's like this interplay between court and london and like how outsiders are viewing court and it's like very subtly in there um i was like hmm how and i would have had no idea that all of this lester stuff can be found in malvolio right in a satire way like i think i know when it's like very obviously like we love the king let's give him witches and macbeth let's play to something that they like but satirizing critique of members of the household it's really cool it is really cool Um, it really permeates this play far more than anyone today could ever understand right it's like interesting to me like how it would play well in both situations like at court the courtiers are obviously going to pick up on like the person that they know maybe are thinking and gossiping about And then, like, outside in the public theater, because these plays are performed in both places with the same sort of production value. Yes. It's also going to play well to the common people who are there to have a bit of a laugh at how ridiculous that the people with money are just as fallible as them and just as messed up and foolish. Yeah. It also makes sense that Olivia might be older and that possibly when you're casting this play... The only characters that should be on the younger side should be the twins, possibly, because mm-hmm. you have these folks of the older generation who are in some ways representative of Elizabeth's aging court. And then you right. have these disruptors who they're disruptive for multiple reasons. But these younger folks who get caught up into the um, the, dec- the social decorum, the generational decorum, the gender decorum of, you know, Illyria and courting within Elizabethan society for for the court Mm -hmm. that's something that i never thought of before because i always assumed livia might be younger or cena might be younger sir toby they're like the same age yeah i know of productions where olivia has been 40s Mm -hmm. versus like a 20 ish looking viola and sebastian Mm -hmm. i am so much more interested in that like highly capable woman of power than like and this is nothing against people who play Olivia, obviously, mm-hmm. but sometimes there's a tendency to play her as very vain instead of tired of 
you know, everybody trying to just, like, win her affections when she's just, like, I'm dealing with other things. Yeah. And Duke Orsino can, like, leave me alone, <laughs> please. Yeah. Like, I've got a house to run. I've got Family a- members to mourn. Family members to mourn. Like, I'm just too busy. And I've been on my own. She did not become a ruler of her household within the last year, which is what the, like, younger mourning person kind of suggests, right? No, she's been a single, quote-unquote, old maid yeah. for quite some time, and she just doesn't need. Like Elizabeth, doesn't need a man as a partner, Mm-mm. or a partner at all, to be an efficient leader. Yeah. And something about Elizabeth was she did also like having younger, attractive courtiers around her. So it would also make sense that, you know, if you're playing on Elizabeth, Cesario could very much be a placeholder for that aging queen's interest in younger men, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to ever tell anyone how to cast a Shakespeare play, but knowing all of this information about Lester and Hatton and the queen and just the court in general and the public discourse surrounding Elizabeth's court. Yeah. I think that casting older actors aside from the twins adds layers that you completely miss if you're casting younger actors for some of these romantic characters. For all for or all anybody of them, really. that's been a romance. Yeah. I mean I, I also think that is a thing that happens so much in theaters that like in Shakespeare's time, right? The idea of, oh, it's inappropriate for these older people to be pursuing love. No, it's not. That's very ageist to say. But it still happens in theater where we see young lovers and only young lovers and people over the age of 30, over the age of 40, 50, 60, mm-hmm. etc. can still pursue and find love. And like you said, it adds layers and possibly layers that were intended to be there. Yeah, ones that we just miss because we haven't yeah. done the scholarship to say like, hey, is there something here that we just have missed? Because we've been reading yeah. it for the themes of mistaken identity and this and that, but not the context in which it was written. Yeah. And actually, these um, men of judgment that are referenced in Twelfth Night are very much seen as the Middle Temple lawyers that would have been present for court to watch that Twelfth Night performance um, back in 1601-1602. And that also is a reason why in this play in particular, you see such a high level of legal terminology There's a ton of references to the legal system, and that's kind of an inside so that the Middle Templars could also have a laugh at themselves. And back to Malvolio, in Middle Temple, there was this understanding of the Inns of Court was a great place to climb up the social ladder. Audience members of that court laugh and punish them publicly because of their opportunism, but it's also something that goes on in those exact courts So, you know, they're having a laugh at themselves while they're also having a laugh at these courtiers who also some of them started out in the inns of court, like Lester started out in the inns of court and he worked his way up. And so it's a nice big internal laugh with and at. It's just much more Saturday Night Live than it is. Let me just write a play about some twins who get separated and mistaken identity and this courtier trick. It's much more... Saturday Night Live. Yeah, it's much more Saturday Saturday Night Live, and it's so much more about collective memory. Mm-hmm. References to what's happening in the time, and it's also collective memory that all of the people seeing it would have about Elizabeth, her court, as well as the ways in which the court and public life intertwine and are presented on the stage. Fascinating. Yes. 
And that is Age in Love. Pew, pew. <laughs> pew, pew. And how plays for the court were, I don't know, like, I feel like I always heard that they were somehow, like, lesser than, you know, oh, like, they'd come and they'd do the show, I guess. And it was like, no, like, these are full productions. The plays are written with the audience in mind, period. Yes. They are given just as much, if not more, importance than, you know. What was going the on in the public in the public theater. theater, yeah. Like, imagine if Hamilton, uh-huh. right, which is already commenting on the politics of today, mm-hmm. was then like, we're going to go perform at the White House, but we're going to be, like, satirizing the White House at the same time. Yes, and we created this play specifically for those people. It's not just, like, the White House calls them up and goes, hey, Hamilton, come on down, perform for us. It's like, yeah. they created this piece of work to satirize them in front of them, in high value. And then we're going to take it to Broadway. Yeah, exactly. You know, when we first were saying, oh, let's do plays for the court, my thought was, okay, this will be very structured. There will be a lot of, like... Um, Rules and regulations. and Yeah, but I didn't think it would be as controversial. I didn't think these no. plays for the court had this much grit to them. Yeah, when I think of, you know, the censuring and what they couldn't perform on stage... It's like, oh, well, that feels like a lim- like a hard limit. It's like, actually, there was a lot of leeway up to that line. You get away with a lot before crossing that line. Yeah, yeah. Especially knowing that Elizabeth welcomed a lot of this stuff. Requested. Mm-hmm. Not just welcomed. She requested a lot of this stuff. So Yeah, and uh, James did as well. I mean, it satirized me. And like that way I know what I'm doing what well I'm... and what I'm, what I'm not doing well. Yeah. It reminds me of the Foreign Correspondence Dinner. Uh-huh. They invite a comedian who kind of roasts all of the media organizations. Yep. And then as, like, the public, we get to see the video after the event and we all have a good laugh. That's a perfect analogy to what these yeah. plays were. So fascinating. Much more fascinating than just having a line of, they happened. I know. What a, what a disservice to just write it in. To just, well, we know. to just focus on the, the historicism of it and not the socio-political impact and reasons why and that this was a form of political theater. Yes. Beyond that, I hope that this piqued other people's interests in the context that these plays were created in and that there's so many layers to yeah. why they were written. Why have a character do this? What is the meaning behind this character doing this thing, the larger scope of English yeah. society? Like we always say, like art isn't created in a vacuum so like what's surrounding it Mm -hmm. there's so many tragedies that we see as transformed into modern political commentaries right and even in the like very light and breezy comedies there's space in the comedies to do that too yes this is definitely a topic that i imagine us coming back to as we get to these plays that were performed for the court so stay tuned for those yeah and uh thank you for listening I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. 
Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From King John, Act 3, Scene 4, said by Constance. No, I defy all counsel, all redress, but that which ends all counsel, true redress, death, death, oh, amiable, lovely death.